Thanks for listening to Boston University School of Medicine's Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, Scope of Pain podcast series. I'm Jessica Alpert. This is episode two. If at any point you want more information on receiving credit for this course, please visit our website, scopeofpain.org. There are also resources that accompany this series. All of it can be found at scopeofpain.org. In episode one, we focused on acute pain. Here to introduce us to the case we'll follow throughout the rest of the series are Dr. Daniel Alford and Dr. Jessica Taylor. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Daniel Alford is a professor of medicine and director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit at Boston University. Dr. Jessica Taylor is an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University. And both doctors are general internists practicing primary care and addiction medicine at Boston Medical Center. Okay, let's meet Kathy James and her new PCP, Dr. Johnson. Good morning, Ms. James. I'm Dr. Johnson. It's really nice to meet you. Tell me what brings you in today. Uh, hi, Dr. Johnson. It's good to meet you as well. Um, boy, it took me a long time to get an appointment with you. You must be really busy. I made an appointment because Dr. Robertson, my old doctor, retired. Basically, I'm here because of my diabetes and because of pain in my feet and hip. Um, I did bring you my medical records. Here they are. Thank you. This is really helpful. Okay, let's take a look. Okay, so, so it looks like you've had diabetes for a few years now, and that's likely the cause of your foot pain. And your hip pain started after your accident and your surgery. And your weight... Yeah, you're going to tell me I need to lose weight. Uh, that's what Dr. Robertson always told me, and, and while we're at it, I know I should quit smoking as well. Well, it's good that your diabetes is controlled on metformin and insulin, and I see that you're on oxycodone and gabapentin for your pain, too. And I have tried everything else, it seems. I've tried ibuprofen, acetaminophen, some medicines for depression even, tramadol, and um, acetaminophen with codeine. All those things, they really didn't work, or they gave me nasty side effects. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, right now, let's talk a little bit more about you. Tell me about your work, your family. I'm married, and uh, we have three kids. Um, once the youngest one went to first grade, I did go back to work, but only part-time because I really wanted to be home when the kids got home from school. Okay. And how much do you smoke, and when did you first start? I used to smoke uh, over a pack a day, but now I, I really almost never finish the cigarette, and I, let's see, I smoke about a, about a pack a day. And do you drink alcohol at all? Not too often. I'll have one or two glasses of wine during the holidays, maybe on the weekends if we're celebrating someone's birthday, but, but that's it. Uh, Mom was an alcoholic, and I'm not going to go do that to myself or my kids. I understand that. It's a really difficult disease. If it's okay, let's go back to your pain medications for a moment. What's going on with them right now? Well, to be honest, it, it took so long to get an appointment with you that... I've been spacing out my pain pills in the last couple of weeks. I'm taking them twice a day instead of four times a day, and it is bad. I am in really bad pain. I'm taking half my dose, and feels like I'm in more than twice as much pain. 
honestly, it's it's getting hard to take care of the kids. And at this point, I did just take my very last pill this morning. And so I need another prescription today. Okay, Dr. Alford, let's talk about this situation. How would you assess her chronic pain? Okay, we focused a lot on acute pain prior to this. And let me just differentiate acute pain and chronic pain. Acute pain is a life-sustaining symptom. So it's adaptive. It motivates us to not re-injure ourselves or to heal if we are injured. So that's acute pain, and it resolves over time. Chronic pain is much more complex, right? It's almost like a disease in itself. It's, it's a maladaptive process of the somatosensory pain signaling pathway where we don't completely understand why it occurs and who's going to get it. There are some genetic and some epigenetic factors. When we think about chronic pain, we usually divide it into nociceptive pain, which is kind of musculoskeletal pain, versus neuropathic pain, which is related to nerve injury. The bottom line is chronic pain can be incredibly disabling, and individuals can really suffer a lot. And we know that chronic pain is associated with higher risk of both fatal and non-fatal suicide attempts. Why are people not getting adequate pain care? So there are lots of barriers to adequate pain care, including negative attitudes and disparities in how we manage pain. There's inadequate training at all levels of health professional training, how to care for patients with chronic pain. There's lack of decision support and helping us manage patients with pain. And I would say probably one of the most important things is there's a financial misalignment favoring the use of medications. It's a whole lot easier for me to prescribe a medication than it is for me to send someone to physical therapy or behavioral therapy. Um, There's a lack of access to pain specialists, so we're pretty much on our own most of the time. And we're busy. Primary care is just full of lots of priorities, uh, and this is just one more thing that we need to do, and it can be very time-consuming. Okay, let's go back to our patient, Kathy James. Her PCP, Dr. Johnson, is about to ask her to go into more detail about her pain. Ms. James, can you tell me a little bit more about your pain right now? Well, my hip hurts. Oh, geez, it's been, man, it's been eight years since the crash, and it still hurts, especially when I try to move a lot. And it's really bad when I try to stand up after sitting. And my feet are terrible. Um, they're always burning and tingling, and they do get numb sometimes. I could barely put on my shoes today because of the pain. I can hear that you're really uncomfortable. Can you tell me on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being no pain and 10 being the worst pain imaginable, where would you rate your overall pain right now? Right now, it's a 20. Okay, so Kathy is giving an off-the-charts pain score. Dr. Taylor, how would you handle this? So this is where trust really enters the equation. Many patients are fearful that providers won't believe the severity of their pain, and that's when we start to hear these exaggerated pain scores that are off the scale. And I'd just like to add something, and that is there's this concept called pseudo-opioid resistance where patients feel that it's not in their best interest to actually tell you the truth, that they're getting better. And why might that be? Because they're fearful as soon as they say, you know, I'm getting better, that you're going to decrease or stop the medication that's helping them or are you going to stop looking for whatever's causing their pain? And even if you've done way too much imaging already, they're still convinced that there's something in there that you're not seeing. So they may be reluctant to tell you they're getting better. 
So how do you begin to overcome this mistrust? Well, we recommend a couple of approaches. First and foremost, it's always important to do a thorough history, a physical exam, and any diagnostic tests that are important to get to the heart of the the cause of the pain. And then most importantly, it's important to, to show empathy for the patient and to really validate that you believe their pain. That, I think, is a key issue. Some providers feel that they're in the position of determining who does and doesn't have pain, but you can believe your patient. And the thing is, if you believe a patient 100% of the time, you are not saying that an opioid is the right medication for their pain. So there's really no risk to validating the patient's symptoms and believing their pain. So in episode one, we use the 0 to 10 scale for assessing acute pain. Is that how you would assess chronic pain? Hopefully not, because using a 0 to 10 scale for pain is really a unidimensional measure. And And that may be fine for acute pain, but for chronic pain, we're really interested in much more than just pain. We're interested in function and quality of life. And there absolutely are multidimensional assessment tools like the McGill Pain Questionnaire or the Graded Chronic Pain Scale. But these are actually long and not so practical for a primary care practice. So the good news, however, is there is a scale that you can use called the PEG scale, which stands for pain enjoyment of life, and general activity scale. So it's three questions that get at the things we're interested in, right? Pain, function, and quality of life. And it's all asking about it over the past week. And so right now we're going to hear Dr. Johnson use that scale with Kathy James. Ms. James, I absolutely hear that you've been in terrible pain, and I really believe you. It would be helpful for me if you could rate your pain within the scale. So let's try a different measurement. What number best describes your pain on average in the past week, where zero is no pain at all and 10 is pain as bad as you can possibly imagine? Oh, that's a 10. Uh, It's really bad. It's the worst it's ever been. Okay. What number best describes how, during the past week, your pain has interfered with your enjoyment of life? So zero, it doesn't interfere at all, and 10, it completely interferes with your enjoyment of life. Oh, it's ruining my life. I hear how hard this is for you. And I know the scale might seem a little bit silly, but it's helpful for me to get a number so that we can track your pain over time. If you could rate your pain on that scale of zero to 10, where where zero, it doesn't interfere with your life at all, and 10, it completely interferes with your enjoyment of life, that would be really helpful. Okay, all right, it's a nine. Okay, thank you. How about the pain interfering with your general activity. So zero, it doesn't interfere at all. And 10, it completely interferes with your general activity. Well, I can't do anything right now. I I guess I'd have to give it a nine. Okay, thank you. So it really sounds like your pain isn't well controlled, um, you know, especially since you've been spacing out your pain medications. If it's okay with you, I'd like to do a physical exam at this point. I'll give you this gown and give you a couple minutes of privacy so that you can change. I'll pull the curtain for you, and when I come back, we'll, we'll do the physical exam. Okay, sure. So it looks like everything is pretty good, um, except for your hip pain and stiffness, and you definitely have evidence of nerve problems from your diabetes, which is what's causing your foot pain. And as you know, um, It would be good to lose some weight. We can talk about that some more. I know Dr. Robertson had mentioned it as well. (music) 
So, Dr. Taylor, how would you think about coming up with a pain treatment plan for this particular patient? I think it's very important to take a multidimensional approach to this patient's pain. By that, I mean not just relying on medications. First, having a conversation with the patient, talking about the importance of self-care and maintaining their function and managing their pain, but also incorporating non-medication strategies to help support them. So physical activity is one often underutilized approach. By that, I mean physical therapy, structured exercise programs. Of course, we have the medications, which are often the focus, and those come in different varieties that we'll talk more about in a moment. Then there are procedures that can be very helpful for certain types of pain. And then there are behavioral medicine approaches that are also often underutilized. Yeah, so actually I'd like to add a patient experience that changed my practice in regards to psychobehavioral treatment. So I referred a patient to a psychologist for cognitive behavioral treatment, and he came back furious, really mad, saying, I am never going back to that provider again. And I said, what happened? And he said, he didn't even examine me. And I said, oh, he's a psychologist. If he examined you, that would have been a problem. But what it meant to me was I didn't do a very good job in setting up that referral. And I do think that some patients think that we're making these referrals as hurdles that they need to go over just to get the medication that they're wanting. And so we really need to explain that these are treatment modalities and that the true treatment for chronic pain is a multidimensional approach as opposed to a single medication. So the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that the studies of both medications and non-pharmacologic approaches have all been less than a year, and in many cases, less than 12 weeks. So the data for long-term treatment remains a little bit unknown. But what we do know is that the multidimensional, multimodal approach is more effective than using a single modality by itself. So let's talk about non-opioid medications. A good place to start is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or the NSAIDs. So these are available over the counter and have a number of benefits. They're anti-inflammatory, they help with pain control, and they also control fever. They're antipyretics. Acetaminophen is also a pain medication that's very familiar to our patients as an over-the-counter medication. Unlike the NSAIDs, it does not have the anti-inflammatory properties, but does cause analgesia and is an antipyretic. Acetaminophen might be less effective than full-dose NSAIDs in relieving chronic pain, but in many circumstances, it does have fewer side effects, particularly in our kidney disease populations, so just something to consider. And then in general, when we talk about these pain medications, the NSAIDs and acetaminophen, we know that there is a ceiling on the analgesic effect. Unlike some other medications that we're talking about today, such as the opioids, patients do not tend to develop tolerance. And they can be used in combination. And by that, I mean an NSAID plus acetaminophen. That can have an additive role. Every patient is different. And so some patients may do better with a particular NSAID, such as ibuprofen, compared to another NSAID like naproxen. So there can be a little bit of room for trial and error to personalize the approach. And you always do want to be cautious about side effects. I mentioned renal issues uh, just a moment ago. Also gastrointestinal side effects, folks with cardiovascular disease. This becomes particularly relevant at high doses of the NSAIDs, but is always important to consider in your pain management planning. Okay, so this patient is actually on gabapentin. How does that fit into everything? Gabapentin is one of our adjuvant medications. And adjuvant medications are the medications that have a primary indication different than chronic pain, but can have a very important role in managing chronic pain. So these fall into a variety of categories. The antidepressants, which include the tricyclic antidepressants, and the SNRIs, or the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, are seizure medications, including the gabapentinoids, such as gabapentin and carbamazepine. Some of our antispasmodics and muscle relaxants, 
And some of our local anesthetics like lidocaine can all have a very important role in complementing the other multimodal strategies that we talked about just a minute ago. I think it is important to keep in mind, though, that some of these medications do have risk. So the gabapentinoids in particular, gabapentin and pregabalin, as well as certain muscle relaxants, have been associated with risky use as well as the development of a use disorder. So they should be incorporated with caution and with appropriate monitoring. So Dr. Alford, can you talk more about opioid medications? Sure. So I like to start the conversation with the natural opiates. And I'm talking about codeine and morphine, which come from opium, which come from the poppy plant. Now, you can take these opiates and bring them to the lab and change them some ways and create semi-synthetic opioids. And those include like diacetylmorphine, which is heroin, or hydrocodone, or hydromorphone, or oxycodone. Those are examples of semi-synthetic opioids. So the important thing to remember is that they came from the natural opiates, and they can be metabolized back to the natural opiates. So you might find morphine and or codeine in the urine when you're prescribing something like hydromorphone. Now, this is in distinction to the synthetic opioids. And the synthetic opioids include things like methadone, meperidine, and fentanyl. They never came from the natural opiates. They will never turn back to a natural opiate. So how do these opioids work? Well, they do a lot of important things in terms of turning down the pain signal. It starts with the descending inhibitory pathway, which is in the periaqueductal gray, which is a norepinephrine and serotonin system, which is probably how tricyclic antidepressants and SNRIs work. They also prevent the ascending transmission of the pain signal. They inhibit the pain fiber terminals in the spinal cord, and they inhibit the pain receptors, the nociceptors in the periphery. What we also know is that there's variability in how patients are going to respond to an opioid in that not all patients respond to the same opioid in the same way, probably because we now know there are greater than 3,000 polymorphisms in the human mu opioid receptor gene. Opioids also activate the reward pathway, which is in the midbrain, which is a dopaminergic system that's there for a reason. Uh, It rewards us for life-sustaining activities like eating, but also species-sustaining activities like having sex. It turns out that these medications, like opioids, turn on that system, that reward pathway, at a much greater degree than our natural triggers like our endorphins. Okay, so earlier Dr. Taylor mentioned analgesic tolerance. What about opioid tolerance? Yeah, so remember, tolerance means you need an increased dose to get the same effect, We know that tolerance to opioids develops pretty readily and rapidly for sedation and respiratory depression, not so much for constipation. So if a patient has opioid-induced constipation, it's unlikely that that's going to go away unless you do something about it. In terms of analgesia, it's a little unclear. Uh, Some patients may develop analgesic tolerance and others don't. But we should also talk about physical dependence because both tolerance and physical dependence are physiologic adaptations to being on opioids chronically. Remember, physical dependence means there are signs and symptoms of withdrawal when you stop the medication abruptly or you decrease it too quickly or you give somebody an antagonist like naloxone. So there's controversy about using opioids for chronic pain. Do they work? Yeah, so that's really the elephant in the room, right? Do opioids work for chronic pain? What we know is from two meta-analyses that were done in the last couple of years, which looked at opioids versus placebo and opioids versus non-opioids, but these studies only lasted up to six months. We know that opioids are better than placebo, looking at high-quality studies, but that the benefits is small. 
both for pain and function. Opioids versus non-opioids, the quality of studies is pretty low, and there seems to be similar benefits between opioids versus non-opioids. There was an important study that was done recently that found that opioids were not superior to non-opioids for musculoskeletal pain for up to 12 months. However, there are some important limitations to that study. The first one is that patients who were already on opioids were excluded, and of those patients who were eligible to be in the study, almost 90% said, I don't want to be involved. So for the people who were enrolled in the study, there was no difference between opioids versus non-opioids. Now, there are two small studies that were longer term that were reported in a Cochrane review that found that 44.3% of individuals on opioids for chronic pain achieved at least 50% pain relief. So I usually use that number with my patients to say that, you know, you got about a 50% chance of benefiting from this opioid or a 50% chance that you won't. So the good news is that it's not 0%. The bad news is it's not 100%. So it's somewhere around 50%. So here's the big question. When would you consider using opioids for a patient with chronic pain? The pain needs to be severe, and it needs to have a significant impact on their function and quality of life, and they have a type of pain that is likely to be opioid responsive. So we know that fibromyalgia and migraine headaches are generally not responsive to opioids, but most musculoskeletal pain and neuropathic pain may respond to opioids. So so that goes into the equation as well, and I want to make sure they've had inadequate benefit to non-opioids. Okay, before I start thinking about an opioid, opioid should never be the first choice. And, and then if someone's already on opioids, like the patient we've been introduced to in this podcast, then I'd like to see some documentation of benefit. I'd like to see that there's been some improvement in pain, quality of life, and function over time. Thanks so much, Dr. Alford. Thank you. And Dr. Jessica Taylor, thanks to you. Thank you. In this episode, we've talked about how opioids work and about the potential benefits of opioids. But we also know that some people develop addiction and some overdose. Next time, we'll discuss how to assess those risks. Scope of Pain was developed in collaboration with our national partners, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies and the Federation of State Medical Boards. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS program companies. Production by Rococo Punch. To follow up on any of the material you heard today, please visit our website, scopeofpain.org, for visuals and other relevant materials. To receive credit, you'll need to listen to all six episodes, and then go to www.scopeofpain.org to complete a post-test and evaluation. I'm Jessica Alpert. Thanks for listening.